this podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Welcome back to Gosh Pods from the Gosh Learning Academy, our podcast where we share a variety of educational content showcasing the work of the GLA. This week we have another episode from our Practicing in Paediatrics series where our own Dr Sarah Cook speaks with Professor Stephen Marks about kidney transplant. We hope you enjoy this week's episode and I'll hand over to Sarah. My name is Sarah Cook and today we are going to be talking about kidney transplant and I'm joined by the wonderful Dr Stephen Marks. He is a consultant paediatric nephrologist here and also the lead for kidney transplantation. Welcome. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me to come today. So thinking about end-stage kidney disease specifically, um, could you tell us a little bit about the management of that and how it's categorised and what the best ways of managing it are? Yes, so end-stage kidney disease management is what we primarily do at um, Great Ormond Street, although as discussed there are many subspecialty areas within paediatric nephrology. In the United Kingdom there are 13 paediatric nephrology units of which 10 offer kidney transplantation which is the mainstay of kidney replacement therapy that we use. However, when we have a patient with um, stage 5 chronic kidney disease, um, so end-stage kidney disease, we need to think of their longer-term management as almost being a cycle of ways of offering kidney replacement therapy. In younger children, we may be able to eke out a little bit more time with medical management, but when we need kidney replacement therapy, we are talking about uh, using uh, dialysis and or transplantation. Normally for children, we would like to consider those patients that enter the program of being able to go from dialysis to transplantation if we haven't been able to do the transplant first. That transplant first is what we aim for. We want patients where at all possible to have preemptive living donor kidney transplantation. So that means that we transplant them before they receive dialysis and means that a living donor who is if possible, blood group compatible and HLA compatible um, to proceed to reduce the risks that we might see with kidney transplantation. With the forms of dialysis, we have peritoneal dialysis, where there's a peritoneal dialysis or a Tenkoff catheter inserted into the abdominal cavity that's uh, performed by our transplant surgeons. And we are able to offer peritoneal dialysis um, with training in hospital with the idea that this is able to be performed at home, sometimes with assisted peritoneal dialysis, where we have care who can go in and assist with the setting up. Usually for peritoneal dialysis, um, this is performed as continuous cycling peritoneal dialysis being attached to a machine overnight. Um, and we now have remote monitoring where we can actually have a look and see what is happening with the peritoneal dialysis um, um, and how often they're going on and for what periods of time. Because although there is a prescription, what happens in people's lives trying to attach the machine at night can obviously vary much more easier in infants than in older children. The other form of peritoneal dialysis 
is where we can do um, three to four exchanges. So that means that we fill the abdominal cavity with peritoneal dialysate. Um, it sloshes around for a few hours. You then take the fluid out and drain it and then put in new um, PD. And I, those exchanges can happen at um, school, college, um, uh, wherever, and usually used in older children. The other form of dialysis that we have is hemodialysis. Um, again, that is usually performed as in-center or hospital um, hemodialysis, usually for four hours, three times a week. And you can imagine with some patients living one to two hours away, then actually that means coming into hospital um, can be a disruption to education, although we do provide um, schooling um, by the hospital school which links in with the local schools of the patients. But what we are now doing more and is not available in all paediatric nephrology centres, even in the UK or throughout the world, is home haemodialysis, where there is now a machine that uh, we use which can perform haemodialysis. And in fact, you can have an increased prescription because you can be on this machine for longer hours during the evenings or even nocturnal home haemodialysis, where it's offered at night time. Then with um, kidney transplantation, as I said, we aim for a preemptive uh, living donor transplantation where possible. Um, and the living donors can be uh, from a related member, usually one of the parents, but aunts and uncles. We've also had older siblings. We don't take donors under 18 years of age for living donors, but um, we can have older sisters, uh, older brothers, but one also has to uh, make sure that the living donor independently wants to donate and they need to take the risk benefit to them and their family on board as well. We are in the situation where we now have a UK living kidney sharing scheme where we can do paired exchange or pooled exchange. And this, for example, is when I can't donate my kidney to my child, you can't donate your kidney to your child, but we could do, for example, a swap where I donate my kidney to your child and you donate your kidney to my child. There is an increasing amount of living unrelated donor transplants. So this is where family friends can come forward. We also have stepmothers, stepfathers, um, more extended family members um, coming forward that are not blood relatives, but also any friend which may be blood group compatible or um, incompatible um, where it is still possible with low teeters. We will have families which, with members that come forward um, with certain donors where we actually say, well, let's see if we can get a better kidney through the UK Living Kidney Sharing Scheme. And we should also talk about, when we mention unrelated, that there is the increasing advent of altruistic donors. And this may be, for example, somebody who wakes up one morning and wants to do their, their duty to their common man and decide that they want to donate their kidney, which may be directed to somebody that they know, which could be through a Facebook campaign or social media, or it could be um, that uh, it's somebody that they have some sort of relationship to. Then we have deceased donor kidney transplantation, and again we have 
multiple forms which include donation after brain death or what we call heart beating kidney donors and those are the ones that we aim for where possible but we do also do DCD so donation after circulatory death and this is non-heart beating kidney transplant donors um, there is an increased incidence of the kidney not working straight away or what we call delayed graft function we're also able with deceased donors to take from smaller donors and to, for the kidneys to be taken on block where we take both of the kidneys from the donor and we implant them into our paediatric recipient. Fantastic. Thinking a little bit about the workup then for a kidney transplant, could you tell us a little bit about what that entails and how quickly that needs to be performed? Obviously this will depend on the type of donation that's occurring. Yes, thank you. So the first thing to talk about will be the donors themselves. So for a living donor, this is somebody who thinks they are otherwise healthy. Um, but of course, going through the process is a bit like having an MOT for your car. So you may think you're healthy, but when was the last time that you had your blood pressure checked, your urine dipstick, or you had a blood test to show you've got normal kidney function? Because in fact, although you may think that those parameters are normal, they may not be. So the first thing in the living donor process would be an individual questionnaire, thinking about what your weight and height are and kind of calculation of your body mass index. Could you lose a little bit of weight? Because obviously making sure you're as fit as you possibly can be going through the living donor nephrectomy itself. So this is the first thing that we do together, looking at your um, smoking habits. How much cigarettes are you smoking? How much are you drinking? Are you using recreational drugs? Um, and very often there will be a process where with the living donor coordinator nurse, they will do the initial screen with you and say, well, why don't you lose some weight? Why don't you try and cut out smoking and then come back and see us in a few months? Then the next stage, obviously, is do you have any medical conditions that you know about and are you on any medications? So, for example, even if you're a type 2 non-insulin-dependent diabetic, we're on oral hypoglycemic agents with normal blood pressure, um, very minimal microalbuminuria and normal kidney function, your kidneys are actually hyperfiltrating anyway. And ideally, we would not use you as a living donor because actually you are at risk of going into to chronic kidney disease yourself in years to come. Obviously, if you're on any medication, if you've had any past medical history, so for example, somebody who has been cured from previous cancer, depending on how invasive, how spread, are you really in remission after how many years? So there's a whole process which goes through to check that you're healthy prior to any investigations being undertaken in you. And they initially will check your blood pressure. You may have a 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor especially if you've got white coat hypertension, making sure you don't have proteinuria, hematuria, um, or microalbuminuria. And in fact, even if you have persistent microscopic hematuria as a potential living donor, you're more likely going to proceed to a percutaneous renal biopsy to check you don't have any significant kidney disease. 
Then more invasive um, tests, so a blood test looking at your kidney function, but a formal measurement of your glomerular filtration rate, and then proceeding to look to see whether your kidneys look okay and the vessels look okay by um, a CT scan, which would obviously pick up if there was any evidence of kidney stones or nephrolithiasis. So that whole process will take some time for the potential living donor, which is between about three and six months. Although there are now the advent of rapid one-stop clinics where almost everything can be done at the one sitting together with um, proceeding to see a nephrologist and a transplant surgeon all on the same day and then follow up with all the test results if they're all normal. However, from the recipient's perspective, there is obviously some time lag as well in checking that you are okay to proceed to receive a kidney transplant. Um, for children who are going through the process, again, it may depend. So, for example, if you present in end-stage kidney disease requiring dialysis, then during your dialysis treatment, you will be in the process of having tests and workup. If, however, you present and you've got chronic kidney disease, we may have some time to make sure that we can proceed with a preemptive living donor kidney transplantation and not requiring dialysis treatment itself. The workup for the recipient will start with a vaccination history. We will want to know whether you had all the vaccines that were recommended at the time. But of course, that's changed. So you may be 16 and what you had as a neonate obviously would be different from today. So, for example, you could have had the BCG vaccination, which now is only given in certain areas where um, tuberculosis is more endemic. Um, we may be in the situation where you've not had hepatitis B vaccination, so we would check to see what um, you, if you've had any um, exposure to hepatitis B and or if you've got any antibody formation as well. And we would make sure that your vaccinations are up to date and give you these additional vaccinations such as meningococcal and pneumococcal vaccine check to see if you've got had measles the MMR vaccination if you made an antibody response if you've had chickenpox varicella zoster vaccine and if you've not had exposure to chickenpox and you have negative antibodies then we would be going through a process where, again, you would have to see a nephrologist and a transplant surgeon as part of the workup, making sure that uh, we checked how things were for that individual patient. If there is a past medical history or family history of clotting disorders, um, checking to see if there's a past medical history um, of or a family history of diabetes, because actually some of the medications such as corticosteroids steroids and tacrolimus would increase that chance and counselling families on the risk benefits of transplantation with the fact that if we give too much immunosuppression you may have infectious complications and not enough uh, medication then you could have acute rejection and what we try and do is to tailor make our immunosuppression to the individual patient based on the information that we've got using our protocols but looking to see 
what the risks are. So, for example, somebody who's going forward for a blood group incompatible or an ABO incompatible transplant or an HLA incompatible transplantation, then, of course, that those are increased risks that we would have to look at and do investigations repeatedly to see what the recipient antibody teeters were. Thank you. And in terms of um, other prior workup, is there a set of um, sort of virology, bacterial screening, any kind of other further scans or imaging that the recipient requires? Yes, so together with our um, living donor and um, coordinators, they would go through the process with um, patients and their families. We would be checking to see that they've had no other infections. So routinely, we would also be checking, for example, for hepatitis C infection, HIV infection, which of course would be important to know, even though you can be transplanted even if you have HIV, as we have done in our centre. We would go through the full vaccination history as well as infection history and do further screening in the recipient um, as well as um, checking if there is any past medical history or family history of any clotting abnormalities and we would be doing imaging to look at the vessels so we would do a Doppler abdominal ultrasound where we would also be looking at the bladder its emptying um, capacity and for children with abnormal bladders we would go through the process of involving our urologists with um, undertaking urodynamics so bladder function assessment assessments. Um, so just to make sure that everything was done properly, we would then be in the process of um, the patient seeing the nephrologist and the transplant surgeon and going through the additional risks. So for example, a child who is under 20 kilograms is going to get an intra-abdominal transplant and that would therefore mean they are going to go to paediatric intensive care after the operation. For children who are above 20 kilograms without a additional risks, they are much more likely to come back to our ward, although internationally in some centres you would find that all kidney transplant recipients would be um, admitted to paediatric intensive care after the operation. Once you're in the situation, for example, that you've got a living donor who has passed all of their investigations and you have a recipient that has passed their investigations, we'll be in the situation where and they can proceed with what is called an independent assessment, which is a legal framework where somebody who's independent to both the donor and recipient teams will check that there is a relationship between the donor and recipient um, and that there is no coercion or financial incentives for the donor to give their kidney, even if, for example, it's come up through uh, social media, for example, a Facebook campaign or on television. That's really interesting to hear a little bit more about the legal side. I appreciate that you're obviously a nephrologist and not a surgeon, but could you just have a chat through the process of kidney transplantation itself? As I know that obviously the consultants are heavily involved in that period as well. Yes, we have a very strong multidisciplinary team where, for example, for an individual patient, they may have a dialysis nephrologist who's involved in their day-to-day -day management, a transplant nephrologist who's involved in the 
the workup before transplantation as well as around the time of transplantation and obviously after discharge from hospital and the longer term outcome because we would expect for example that a living donor kidney transplant from the work we've done looking at the national data about 50% of um, living donor kidney transplants would still be functioning around 18 years afterwards of course that means that we have some kidneys that we've transplanted 30 and even 40 years where the patients don't have normal kidney function but they're not having another transplant imminently or they're not going back on dialysis. So through the process and the MDT team which may involve for example um, the nurses on the dialysis side but also the nurses around the time of the transplantation as part of the workup process together with our play specialists and play therapists we've also got the pharmacists that are involved other members of the MTT team including the um, psychosocial team but of course as you mentioned the transplant surgeons are a key integral part of that we have a team of five consultant transplant surgeons and a fellow um, who work between both both the adult and the paediatric teams in London. They will see the patients um, going through the process, usually when their um, workup is complete, and will talk through the surgical implications of the operation. So thinking about if there is more likely to be problems at the time of the transplant, and that might be because of abnormal vessels. It may be because the patients had, for example, nephrotic syndrome and they're clotted off a lot of their vessels it may be that there's an underlying syndrome with the development of abnormal vessels where normally we would have had that routine ultrasound we would then proceed to do some more detailed imaging which may be an MR uh, venography uh, and MRA where for example we might use the time of flight sequence as opposed to using um, gadolinium and from that we can actually make a 3D print of the donor kidney as well as the recipient's abdomen. For the smaller children, it's more likely to be an intra-abdominal transplant with anastomosis onto the aorta and then fear of vena cava, whereas in an older children above 20 um, kilograms, it would be extra peritoneal onto the iliac vessels. For those children with urological abnormalities and abnormal bladders, we may do a cutaneous ureterostomy just to make sure that um, we're able to get drainage of the urine so that we don't add in the situation of the bladder as a complication initially. Um, all children would have insertion of a transplant ureteric stent at the time of transplantation and that would need to be removed around about six weeks after transplantation usually with an operation, but again, we are using different techniques in, in moving forward. And obviously talking about the surgical complications which can happen as a result of transplantation, because even though we plan for everything in each individual patient, you're talking that everyone will have some form of medical or surgical complication. Some of them are very mild. 
We talked a little bit, for example, about um, the viruses that we um, monitor, and in fact, we can use prophylaxis for CMV, but with Epstein-Barr virus, for example, this can develop into a post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder, which is usually managed initially by reducing immunosuppression, um, but may require treatment with intravenous rituximab, or in fact, even involvement of the oncology team if we get uh, lymphoma developing. So everything is about balancing um, the risk and benefits. For example, some patients um, will develop a BK virus, which can attack um, their kidney as well as the cause um, ureteric complications. So we always have to be aware of what possibilities may develop in an individual patient. And because of these additional viral risks, we will do ongoing screening of the recipient throughout their post-transplant course looking, for example, to see if they develop donor-specific antibodies, which may result in humoral-mediated rejection, for example. Brilliant, thank you. Um, and so once the kidney has been transplanted, um, during the next 24 or 48 hours to a week, what are the key concerns there and what are the key management decisions that need to be made? Well, we've gone through the last few years with more of an enhanced recovery programme. So patients are actually remaining in the hospital for much shorter periods of time. Um, so older recipients without any complications can actually leave within five to seven days of having the transplant. We have the facilities of a patient hotel um, whereby patients can be discharged from the ward and then it means that they're actually just around the corner from the hospital they've got access to our team 24 hours a day but means that in if anything happens in the middle of the night they just come straight to the ward and we were we will assess them and decide whether they need any further management or for example may need um, readmission Within the first 24 hours, um, what we want to see is, is that we're able to monitor them closely with um, fluid and electrolyte management. We would normally start with giving them insensible losses plus urine output um, and trying to drive the kidney, which will have been given quite a lot of fluid in theatres. It'd be acute management of electrolyte abnormalities, hypertension. We may be in the situation that there is delayed graft function or even hopefully not, but primary non-function whereby you may have a child who didn't need dialysis yesterday because we were transplanting them preemptively, but actually they need kidney replacement therapy because the potassium levels are too high. They've got high blood pressure because of fluid overload and we need to remove the fluid. If they're in intensive care, this can be done by continued venovenous um, hemofiltration. If they're on the ward, then we would have to think about peritoneal dialysis or hemodialysis depending on access at the time. However, what we mostly see is, is that the plasma creatinine is reducing, that they're opening up. We're able to try and um, normalise things as much as possible, getting the patient um, to drink well, um, making sure that they've got uh, good ongoing um, bowel management as well and that they're not getting constipated. We have a new programme where instead of using um, a lot of morphine, either with 
nurse-controlled or patient-controlled analgesia alone. We've now got tap locks, which is where we insert a catheter at the time of the transplant through the transabdominalis plane and basically have instill anaesthetic, but which actually can then be an infusion initially. And we've seen that this actually means that patients make an improvement much, much quicker and they're able to mobilise. And in fact, if it was you or I having had a transplant, we would be on the bed moaning. You can come in and do a ward round the day after the transplant uh, from the evening before and the kids are sitting up and look absolutely amazing. So it's just trying to normalise things. And as things happen, we will then try and remove, for example, the wound drain, their neckline, the urethral catheter, try and take the plastic out. We'll have covered them for infections such as bacterial and viral infections. We'll be monitoring to check their temperature, that they're not developing an infection with their um, CRP increasing, and then try and normalise them until they're able to take their oral intake and hopefully manage their new set of medications, which will be completely different to their medications they had on admission because they'll now be on immunosuppression and really enforcing them to understand that this is medication which is life-saving for their kidney transplant and they will need to continue immunosuppression for the life of the transplant. Brilliant and just having a think a little bit about that immunosuppressant uh, regime is this a tailor-made process per patient or is there quite a standard protocol of immunosuppressants at GOSH and does this sort of begin from day one of the functioning kidney being inserted. So I was um, co-chair of the world's first um, harmonisation process. So we've actually got agreement from the whole of the United Kingdom of two different immunosuppression protocols, but those are just for standard uh, risk transplants. So it doesn't include patients that we would have definitely a more tailor-made immunosuppression, which would be for blood group ABO incompatible and HLA incompatible transplants. However, for standard risk transplants, what we aim to do at Great Ormond Street and now through many hospitals is what we published our international randomised control trial, which was using what we call the TWIST protocol. And with this, we give two doses of um, basiliximab at day zero and day four. This is an anti-CD25 monoclonal antibody, which blocks T-cells, has good uh, immunosuppressive effect, especially in the first month. And this allows us to give actually a weaning dose of corticosteroids. So we only give five days of initially intravenous methoprednisolone, but going on then to oral prednisolone. But the maintenance immunosuppression for those patients without steroids would be ongoing mycophenolate, mofetil and tacrolimus. And if everything is going well by about two weeks, we would have the dose of mycophenolate, mofetil. We'd be looking out for hematological side effects and making sure that we're monitoring 12 our trough tacrolimus levels aiming for a therapeutic but without getting toxicity or underdosing because there are pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic variations in individuals and it's only by doing the drug levels that we would actually know in individual patients. 
Obviously, for patients, for example, who've got a risk of recurrence of their primary disease in their kidney transplant, we would, again, have a more tailor-made approach. We might use that above-twist protocol, but actually continue prednisolone for a longer period of time. For those that are high immunological risk or HLA-incompatible transplants, then we would be using stronger immunosuppression, so with alimtuzumab, together with ongoing corticosteroids, with prednisolone ongoing, together with mycophenolate mofetone, tacrolimus. And it may be if you were unable to get the TAC levels up to the desired level, you keep the MMF dose and the steroids a little bit higher whilst we actually are trying to monitor those levels throughout the first few weeks. So very much, as you said, a tailor-made process, but we do aim to have patients just on mycophenolate mofetone and tacrolimus. But for example, some of the small ones or those that have had problems with their gut may have diarrhea and may be difficult for them um, to tolerate. So again, we would have to individualize it for each patient and try and change their immunosuppression. However, they need to continue on the immunosuppression drug regime through the life of the transplant. But if you came to my transplant clinic that we do with the transplant team here, you would see that many patients have an excellent quality of life. Some of them, you wouldn't know that they've even had a transplant. In fact, some of them might not even tell their um, friends um, because they want to just be deemed to be normal. But obviously, through a network of support, we have many kids who do really well, for example, in the British Transplant Games or in fact even um, compete in the World Transplant Games and are fully active both in their schooling, quality of life um, and uh, longer term sport and health issues. So we've got some young uh, transplant recipients who've even wanted to be doctors or nurses and work within the medical team, having been seen what it's like being looked after by the nephrology team through their childhood. That's really lovely to hear. I'm sure that's really lovely to see all the children um, grow up and experience life as they should. Obviously, one of the main fears of recipients from transplant is graft rejection. Could you tell us a little bit about when that's most likely to occur and what the signs of that might be? Yes, it's a very interesting area looking after children through acute rejection. So we have immunological matching, and we talked a little bit about ensuring that their blood group compatible, although we can do incompatible transplants. But when we look at um, the matching, we use what is the HLA, so the human leukocyte antigen, and what we match for is HLA, B and DR. So we talk about six antigen match means that you've got no mismatches at the loci of A, B and DR. But remember there are other loci, there's DP, there's DQ, which can give you antibody mediated rejection. So you may be matching in the first three completely, but maybe not in some of the other aspects. Remember that we get um, half of our genetic data from our uh, mother, the other half from our father. So we are in the situation where biological mother or father will be at least a 50% match, which is good enough for us. And in fact, we've done some work nationally where we showed that actually poor living donor can actually have better longer term outcomes than a deceased donor. So these mismatches may allow us 
patients to go on to develop antibody-mediated rejection. So we will do screening in our recipients to see if they have any evidence of donor-specific antibodies. And that may be an indication that they are at risk of developing humoral-mediated rejection. But we also have acute T-cell-mediated rejection. And um, those patients very often will present initially, but you can develop rejection at any point. So even if you have no evidence of antibodies, you've got a, a six-antigen matched kidney, anything can spark off a rejection. So not taking your medications and having reduced 12-hour trough tacrolimus levels, having an intercurrent infection can spark off the immune system. Some immunizations can even do that. Everything is always at risk. And there are some patients who maintain their level of immunosuppression for years and then all of a sudden they develop a rejection episode. Most commonly, we will see it develop within the first year. And that is the crucial um, process of why we follow those patients up more routinely. Obviously, once you're doing much better and years after transplant with reasonable kidney function, we may only see you every three months, so four times a year. And actually, you may have no symptoms and have a stable creatinine of 90. And then you come and see me in clinic and you say, you've been absolutely fine, you go home and I find out that your plasma creatinine is 900. However, patients may present with fever, abdominal pain, they may be tender over the renal allograft, their blood pressure may be up, they may have developed proteinuria. Those are all things that we will look out for, but some of which these patients will be fine without any symptoms at all. Brilliant. And just thinking about the longer term picture, could you tell us a little bit about the outcomes um, of kidney transplant in terms of both morbidity and mortality? Yeah, so we publish our local um, data um, on the GOSH website as part of the information which is available. We also have benchmarking against national as well as internationally. So we are in the situation where we can look at our programme and make sure that we do as well, if not better, than our national and international colleagues. One of the issues to say, though, is that one has to remember that very often we transplant the untransplantable, so other units will say that they won't offer transplantation and then refer them to us. This may be either nationally or through Europe or even internationally where we get really complex ones where the risks are much higher. And in fact, I've been in the situation before where I've had to contact the National Health Service Blood and Transplant and say, look, we are about to do three transplants in a row which are higher risk of patients who are not going to be transplanted elsewhere because the way that the data is analysed nationally it goes against how your centre has done historically and every time you have a graph failure you're in the situation that it will spark on a QSIM graph where you've had a reduction in your outcome and if you have three then it could significantly affect your centre's outcome. We find that most children do very well. There is an increased incidence of thrombosis and graft loss in those with risks for coagulopathy thrombosis that we know about, or family history, or children who've had previous clots, or those with abnormal vessels, or the exception young. So you generally find that when you look at the survival curves, that most children under two years may have the worst outcome in the short 
short time over the first few months post-transplant but actually once by the time you get to about five years out those children do the best and the reason is is because their mummy and daddy are giving them their medication what we tend to find is is that the group that um, are the adolescents who are more at risk of losing their transplants from not taking them in a suppression they do best at the start and then tend to actually lose their grafts most children however do very well um, then we have very few children who die in our end stage kidney program um, we have the largest uh, pediatric renal transplant center in the United Kingdom one of the biggest in the world most of the children that have problems it's because they lose their kidney and most of that um, can be because of rejection immunological or infectious complications we have patients who have post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder or PTLD but very few of them will actually die as a result of that most of them will be able to be treated with reduction of immunosuppression intravenous rituximab and the very few who will go on to require chemotherapy or be part of our um, clinical trial teams where we've tried other things such as uh, cytotoxic T lymphocytes or tacrolimus resistant cytotoxic T lymphocytes so generally transplantation outcomes uh, in the UK and throughout the world are excellent and um, that is why we strive to do preemptive living donor kidney transplantation where possible and very often when I do the transition clinics I hand over patients to adult nephrology team who come to see the kids for the first time at GOSH and then have an ongoing process of reviewing these patients over um, between 16 and 18 years before they're transferred over but we sometimes have to educate them because although they may have been on dialysis from birth they could have had their first transplant at age 18 months and not realize what they're gambling with if they stop taking their medications when they're 18 so very good quality and quantity of life as I said the living donor outcomes tend to be better with the half-life so about 50% of the kidneys still working 18-19 years later whereas deceased donor tend to be a couple of years short of that depending whether it's donation after brain death or donation after circulatory death a heart beating or non-heart beating transplant so come and see us in a transplant clinic and you'll see the kids doing well or even better go and visit them at the British Transplant Games thank you brilliant thank you so much that's all we have time for today unfortunately on this podcast but thank you so much for joining us and we hope to see you again very soon on this channel thank you for listening to this episode of gosh pods if you want to listen to more brilliant educational podcasts from the team at the gla please search gosh learning academy wherever you get your podcasts you can find out more about the work of the gla by heading to the gosh website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and searching learning academy we're also on social media. You'll find the links to our Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn in the episode description. We hope you enjoyed this episode and you join us again soon for another instalment of Gosh Pods. Mm-hmm.